Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to the 2021 420 special of Great Moments in Weed History. We're so excited that you're spending the day with us. Isn't that right, Bean? Absolutely, man. I mean, it's our second 420 in quarantine. We're definitely looking forward to Puff Puff Pass coming back next year. But for now, we've all got to celebrate 420 everywhere and every way that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And today we're going to be getting into the weeds, as it were. And we're going to be talking about some pretty serious strain history And for that purpose, we've got a very special guest, none other than weed legend, Danny Danko. Yeah, Dan has been at the forefront as a cannabis journalist, as a grower, and with a long underground history that predates all of that. And he was also really kind of my weed mentor when I started at High Times. I literally thought every strain name was made up. I'd never seen more than two weed plants in one place at any one time and Dan took me under his wing and it's an education that continues to this day for sure so he's the perfect guest yes absolutely he's got a long long rap sheet of weed experience and he currently hosts the podcast grow bud yourself which is filled with really really excellent information on cannabis for anyone who's curious You can check out Grow Bud Yourself wherever you find your podcasts. We've done a couple different things for our previous 420 specials. For our first one, we traced the history of 420 itself, which goes back to the Waldos. For our second one, Bean and I talked about some of our individual and collective personal great moments in weed history. And Bean, why don't you tell the people what we're going to be doing today? Yeah, we thought, why not celebrate this 420 by talking about some of the great moments in the history of weed itself. And to do that, we've got to start with the story of old land race strains from thousands of years ago up in the mountains of Nepal and Afghanistan and trace it all the way to today's modern hybrid super strains. And there is nobody better to help us through that journey than Danny Danko. Yep, that is right. And before we dive into it, we just want to give a big, big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you so much. We're posting all kinds of stuff on Patreon now. We're, we're doing old archival photos from the early days of the show. We're posting all kinds of bonus materials. And we're going to have new great stuff coming at you on Patreon. So thanks for supporting us on Patreon And if you don't already, please do check us out. All right. So with all that said and done, I've got a little fatty rolled up here. Bean, how about yourself? That's right. I got a big fatty boombalati here myself. I mean, it's 420, right? But, uh, you know, if you're not ready yet, if you don't have a joint rolled or a bowl pack or a blunt split or a dab ready to dabulate, it's cool. No worries, man. Just hit pause. We'll be right here when you come back. And when you come back, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. All right. 
right, so it looks like we are ready to get started and welcome our very special 420 guest, two great moments in weed history, Danny Danko. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Abdullah and Bean. Happy 420, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Happy 420 to you too, my friend, and to you, Bean. Yeah, we've all shared some 420s together. Uh, this is obviously a remote 420 for us. I, I think and hope the last remote 420. For now, this is fantastic. Two of my favorite weed peeps in the whole wide world, and we're gonna talk about great moments in actual weeds history. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And there are definitely a lot of different strains, a lot of different amalgamations of our favorite plant to discuss here. As we've gone through the show, I mean, we're at, you know, 40 some episodes now. We've talked about a lot of different kinds of weed, and this is a really great opportunity to give our listeners some insight into the actual botany behind the stars. Yeah, and I should just note a good portion of this episode is based on an article I wrote for Leafly called Seven Weed Strains That Changed the Game. Uh, big shout out to Leafly as a supporter of my journalism. Uh, but Dan, I'm seeing the look on your face and you see controversy uh, clearly heading our way. <laughs> weed controversy, the best kind. Well, you know, the truth is that some of these stories are folklore and, you know, they're murky for a reason. They A lot of this research and development happened uh, during very strict prohibition times. And so, you know, there's stories that put you off of the path of the truth. And then there's the stories that are real and it's up to us to figure out the truth. Yeah. You know what I'm really curious about myself and definitely something I want to pick your brain about, Dan, is, you know, at what point we crossed over into the huge like periodic table of strains that we deal with specifically in the United States or in the West today, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in the old days, strains were just based on where they came from. They were land races. You had uh, Afghani, you had Indian, you had uh, Jamaican, and they were just, you know, related to the place they came from. I think before we talk about the seven strains that changed the game, and that list is up for debate, and I think we may even want to add one because as we know breeding uh never stops when it comes to cannabis but we got to start at the beginning of our story and like avocados and apples and potatoes and lots of other commercial crops cannabis comes in a wide range of varietals uh, which are commonly called strains so think of haas or macintosh or russet but instead of avocados and apples and potatoes we're talking about weed. The oldest cannabis strains are collectively categorized as land races, which is a term used to describe genetically distinct varieties that are indigenous to a specific geographic region where over a long period of time, uh, these strains have adapted to the local climate and the traditional cultivation techniques. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Right. So all the strains that we know today are the result of this type of breeding. Yeah, all, all of cannabis has a common ancestor, but these different land races have acclimated to different parts of the world. They have distinct uh, characteristics based on the climate where they're from. And uh, as we know them, these are strains that are usually named uh, along with the place that they're from. So think of Panama Red or Malawi Gold. I'm sure you guys can name some other ones. Thai stick and uh... Panama red. <laughs> That's a big one. 
my high school days in New Jersey were fraught with something called Jamaican red hair, which I don't even know if it's a real strain. It's definitely <laughs> something I'm curious about. Yeah, I always remember having trouble pronouncing Oaxacan, <laughs> but I got <laughs> now I got it down. And these, if you this generation of of aging hippies is really starting to age, but if you can find a real old school uh, weed smoker of, of any kind who, who remembers the 60s, these are the strains that they're going to they're gonna mythologize. And in the earliest uh, issues of High Times, going back to when the magazine came out in the 70s, that's what you would see in the centerfolds, right, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at them now, it's funny how, how sort of stringy and wispy they look in comparison to what we see nowadays. Mm. Yeah, somebody put a picture on online and was like clowning, saying, oh, this was the best weed of 1978. But it's actually really great weed. I don't know. Have you guys had experience smoking real land races in your lives? Yeah, I've definitely had the pleasure of smoking some land races in the Annapurnas. I, I got to smoke finger hash that was, you know, being uh, generated from the wild plants on the mountain there. And then in Thailand, we smoked a lot, a lot of very wild weed. This was like in the early 2000s. And actually when I got to sort of interact with a Landry strain that is probably the oldest, closest to original that I've ever personally been in the presence of, it was in the Altai Mountains in Siberia when I was doing a vice doc. And there was wild cannabis growing everywhere. And I remember the drivers were like, you could make some finger hash, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of run your hands along and go like that, you know, rub your palms together and you'll generate some amount of hash. And, you know, I like rolled a cigarette in some of this uh, finger hash from this, uh, you know, kind of ancient Altai Mountain weed strain. And I was very lit uh, out in Siberia. It was, it was, you know, I think in, in those experiences, a lot of times, like, you know, if you smoke the, the wild cannabis indigenous to a place, the effect that it gives you is going to somehow fit the climate and the surroundings that you're in. Like the plant knows what experience to give you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And those Southeast Asian strains, the Thai and the uh, Vietnamese and Laotian uh, are just very electric in a lot of ways that you don't find. Mm. Um, also African strains like uh, Nigerian and Durban poison. And uh, oh, yeah. Bean and I had an experience uh, smoking Punta Roja in uh, Vancouver mm. Island of Canada. That was very, uh, very interesting. So, you know, people may look at those pictures and think, oh, that looks like, you know, swag. But the truth is a lot of us uh, would really love to smoke some of those strains again. And the way they would look now would be very different because of the ways we've advanced in growing techniques and, and all of that. I think that that's a really important point to note. You know, in the current cannabis legal cannabis market that we have here where there's all, there's all this abundance and there's different strains you know people kind of i feel like miss the point of communalism over cannabis and they start getting competitive and they're like this is better or this is worse or this is whatever right and of course there's all different types of quality there's all different types of purity there's all different types of flavor right that you're going to get but I think it's important to remember that no cannabis is better than any other cannabis, right? If it's getting you high, if it's giving you that life therapy that we all draw from cannabis, then it's good cannabis. It doesn't matter how much you smoke or how potent it is or how ill your dabs are, right? Cannabis is cannabis. <laughs> and if you're 
Making it into a pissing contest, you're missing the point. Unless you're growing cat piss. <laughs> yeah. Specifically <laughs> that which is a, That would be a great competition, a, a pissing contest of everyone's cat piss that they grow. But you're right. Uh, it's for me. For uh, Dan, me, that idea belongs to Great Moments in Weed yeah, History and Great Moments in Weed History Productions, our, our parent company. Nice. Yeah, I think to follow up on Abdullah's point, uh, friend of the podcast and friend of everyone who loves weed, Valerie Corral, made the point to me once, and I'll never forget it. The biggest difference in weed is between some and none. Mm, and you point. should always be happy to have some. Yes, uh, very true. And I think. I think when we also when we talk about the changes in cannabis from these land races, not all of that breeding was done to make cannabis more potent or pleasurable or medicinal. Some of it was done for bag appeal. Some of it was done to make the plants mature faster. Mm. So, you know, just because something, quote unquote, looks better, uh, that doesn't mean that it smokes better or that it affects you in a way you're going to like more and uh Hopefully, one of the things we'll see in the future of weed is more land races. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of them still exist. Uh, people have been out there hunting them down for many, many years. And so they're out there isolated in certain pockets. And, you know, I've heard of people that have them as well. So it's just a matter of ensuring their continued survival. Yeah. And I think if you go to the source in a lot of these places, you know, in, in Thailand, in India, in Pakistan, in Nepal, like those are land race strains. That's, that's what's growing there. There is still entire spiritual and social communities that are using those strains of weed, right? And I, I think it's really interesting that it is the, it, the, the prohibition environment of cannabis in the United States that led to all of this different strain development, right? If that had never happened, we might have still just had imports and exports and, you know, cannabis would have come from one place. It would have been cultivated in mass or, you know, whatever. But instead, you have this really specific thing happening. And it's also kind of unfair that, you know, America made weed illegal for pretty much everyone else in the world. And here at home, we got to, in the shadows, develop all of these crazy strains that are now recognized as some of the world's best. Strains that had never been in contact, you know, very, very distant relatives. Nigerian land races are very distant from what you might find in South America or Central America. They all have one ancestor, but they start coming together in the breeding that happened largely uh, in California. But before we go on to the hybrid era, uh, it occurs to us that throughout great moments in weed history, we've been visiting different periods of time and we've been visiting different geographic locations and these land race strains have been present at a lot of these great moments in our show so abdullah maybe we could go through the list we put together yeah. uh, and talk about the strains that were there for certain great moments yeah absolutely and like Bean said you know we've talked about a lot of different strains you know, some of them are perhaps not in existence anymore. Some of them have been bred into all kinds of other strains. But let's go down this list and we're going to do it uh, somewhat chronologically here. We're going to go way, way back to the earliest strain that we have talked about. Actually, to be fair, in the Shiva episode, we probably talked about strains that are technically somewhat older, Hinduism being older. But this one's pretty goddamn old and it's own right and it is the cannabis that was used in 
the recipe for cannabis tincture that is found in the Bible. This is Jesus's strain of weed. And it's pretty mysterious, of course, you know, uh, considering that even Jesus's existence is not archaeologically evidenced. Uh, you know, it's really hard to say what kind of strain this was. But looking at the location, I mean, obviously, you know, we're uh, in Nazareth or, or Bethlehem or, you know, wherever uh, the baptism happened. Uh, what strain are, are we talking about here, uh, Dan, if you had to guess? <laughs> That's a good one. I remember uh, in History of the World Part 1, I think they used a papyrus to roll up uh, some Roman red. What's he doing? He's picking flowers. Roman red. Roman red? A whole field of wacky weeders. He's picking those weeds. Papyrus. Rolling papyrus. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm guessing no maybe brooks. I'm guessing maybe it was the Roman red. Well, I think you know we talk a lot about OG uh, weed, but this is OT. This is Old Testament <laughs> weed. <laughs> it goes back pretty far. Obviously, this would be a Middle Eastern land race. I would imagine some of the cannabis you find in that part of the world now. Uh, still is a direct descendant from what Jesus used and what was uh, around in biblical times. But, uh, you know, short of a hot box time machine, we, we may not uh, be able to definitively uh, solve that mystery just today. Yeah. The one thing we know for sure, it was not Calamus strain. Uh, we've talked about this <laughs> at length in the episode on Jesus uh, Calamus is boo-boo. Uh, it's inert. <laughs> you don't want that shit if someone sold you Calamus. Uh, return it. Hope you have a receipt. So let's fast forward a little bit, uh, you know, in our uh, Great Moments time machine here. And we're going to get back to the early part of the 20th century. And we're talking about Mez Mesro, who was the cannabis supplier and friend of Louis Armstrong as well as many others in the early jazz scene. And the strain that he's associated with, which is Mexican gold leaf. Dan, what do you know about Mexican gold leaf? You know, I'm just assuming that it's one of those landrace Mexican strains. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think back then, it, you know, anything that Mez was getting was probably making its way through New Orleans. And I think anything that made its way through New Orleans would probably be coming up through Mexico. And so... You know, that's that jazz kind of jazz musician pipeline that really did spread a lot of the word in the 20s and 30s before Prohibition even began. Gotcha. So we're talking like a Mexican sativa, huh, Bean? Yeah. There's kind of this push now to say, oh, indica and sativa doesn't matter. And they're not, those aren't important terms. And I'm going to push back on that in a couple of ways. One of which is they're physically just very distinctly different plants when you grow them when we're talking about land races when we're talking about a hundred percent sativa mm. or a hundred percent indica one is going to be tall and and wispy and one is going to be short and squat um they're they're clearly different in that sense and then in terms of effects that's a little more controversial but i think what most people smoke now are hybrids that are maybe 60 40 
one way or the other. So yeah, it is subtle. And yeah, it may not be uh, that good of a way to classify a hybrid as a as an indica or sativa, but the effects of a purebred sativa and a purebred indica are very different. Inda couch for indica still holds. And when we look at like Mez Mesro and the jazz musicians of the 20s and 30s, being fueled by a sativa that is uplifting and cerebral Mm. and you know that of course goes with what they're directly involved in the creation of this improvised exciting at the time cutting edge music yeah i think that's a very interesting point you know you can definitely see the influence there I definitely have heard a lot of the arguments for saying terpene profiles or terpene profiles. Indica or sativa is a very general category. And yet, in my consumption, I will lean towards the classification, right? It's like if I want something that's going to make me more up or more creative, I will go for something more fruity or lemony or, you know, terpenes associated with a sativa. And, you know, of course, conversely, if you want something a little more down, you know, you go with something purple or something more gassy or whatever else. I think the really interesting thing about Mexican weed and, you know, perhaps Mexican gold leaf is in that lineage is that there was no cannabis, right, in the Americas until 1500s, right? And the conquistadors brought over hemp seeds from Europe. And, and Dan, you, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this theory here because I know there's like sort of mixed evidence for it but the idea that this was essentially hemp seed that was brought over here and when it was planted in the tropical environment that it started to within a couple generations become more of the spindly tall sativa that we know and that's why this is more likely to be that kind of uplifting sativa weed generations later yeah well i mean it's clear that plants acclimate to their environment that's how we have these these land races because it as being mentioned they all originated in the same place and spread around the world so you know the stuff that ends up close to the equator is going to try to protect itself with as much essential oil as possible uh if it's uh, towards the equator it's going to adapt in that way if it's high up in a mountain it's going to adapt to the mountainous range if it's in siberia as you mentioned it's going to adapt to a very short flowering cycle and if we view that uh, essential oil as a protectant of some kind, either from uh, harsh sun or pests or whatever it might be, then it makes perfect sense that the plant would eventually just acclimate to its environment and become a higher THC, higher essential oil producing plant in a region where it just needs to do that to survive. Mm, That's very interesting. And I think that that adaptability and that hardiness and that ability to grow in any kind of environment is something that the cannabis community, particularly through the era of prohibition, has learned from the plant. Uh, They call it weed for a reason. You know, this plant inspires us in that way through example, for sure. Yeah, and I would also add that not only is the plant adapting to its environment, but humans are picking and choosing for thousands of years also mm. the, the the highest quality plant to breed for the next season. So there's a human element there too. And whether you're growing for hash is very different than whether you're growing for tea or whether you're growing for flowers. So the choices that were made in all these different regions 
did also have an effect. So it's environment and human intervention that developed all these different right. strains. So this gets back to Michael Pollan, botany of desire, right? As the sort <laughs> of uh, most sort of mainstream depiction of this idea, the fact that we think we're choosing the plants, the plants are very much choosing us, right? Uh, you know, look, when we look at America and we're talking about strains that have been carried from all over the world, not only over long distances, but through all kinds of layers of prohibition. You know, there's been a, a lot of periods where these seeds and these plants have been prohibited and yet people go to all these lengths to, you know, procure them and to replant them and to make them flourish in this new environment. We think that this plant is, you know, like we're controlling the situation. This plant is very much touched something inside of our brains and inside of our hearts and, you know, led us to treat it this way. Yeah. And I just, before we close the books on, on Mexican land races, I, I got to say, shout out, you were the first weed that ever got me high. And uh, <laughs> definitely for a few years, I don't want to age myself out of the relevancy, but I, and raise your hand or chime in. I, I came up on Mexican weed. We called it swag. We didn't even call it swag because we had nothing to compare it to. We, it was just we weed. called it a blessing. <laughs> it was, uh, it it would was come some with weed instead of, of no weed. Yeah. Yeah, it was some weed instead of no weed. Is that what you guys came up on, uh, Mexican weed? I believe some of the weed I was getting was Canadian because I was I was in New England when I started smoking weed. Uh, and fortunately, it was a little bit better than what I was getting in New Jersey. We used to go to a city called Patterson in New Jersey. Uh, it was definitely brick weed, very seedy, very gross. Uh, I'm not sure where it came from. I would not be surprised if that was Mexican brick weed. Uh, but yeah, on our better days, we had Canadian weed. How about you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I definitely started out with the uh, the Mexi brickweed. And, you know, at first it was pretty brown, lots of seeds, lots of stems, the occasional insect. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> over time, that turned green. And then people started calling it Zona to give us the idea that it was actually grown in Arizona when it was just passing through Arizona. And then... Uh, <laughs> You know, and then as you mentioned, the Canadian and, you know, if we got some Jamaican or something like that, that would be amazing. Uh, even Colombian was kind of still around, but not the bulk of cannabis at the time that I started smoking was definitely Mexican. All right. So next up on the list is a strain from our Fela Kuti episode. So, of course, Nigerian music and political legend Fela Kuti had a compound in Nigeria, uh, which was a sovereign nation for a short time, and weed was legal within this sovereign nation. He butted heads in a pretty big way with the Nigerian authorities, and he prevailed in the end. But we're talking, of course, about Nigerian haze. Dan, what can you tell us about Nigerian haze? Nigerian uh, haze or Nigerian silk is a land race from that region, a lot of times looking very dark, because uh, so much essential oil and the way that it's sort of pressed together, very electric. I mean, people get panic attacks when they smoke it if they're not expecting that much of an uplifting, racy kind of buzz. And so yeah. uh, I think that had a lot to do with Fela being able to play like, you know, 20 minute long songs and, <laughs> and dance around with a big <laughs> spliff. And he, you know, he, yeah. he certainly... Uh, did not live the life of a, of a couch-locked stoner. He was very active. <laughs> he was. And so 
Nigerian Haze is something I've smoked in New York and in California. Uh, I definitely wonder how close it is to the land race, but I definitely associate it with a really heady high. And this hazy aroma, you know, haze always smells like medicine to me. You know what I mean? It smells medicinal and not in a bad way, not in a bitter way, in a kind of like robust way. You know what I mean? And that's how I always describe the flavor of Nigerian haze. Of course, the legend, you know, New York grower AJ Sauer had a strain of Nigerian haze that, you know, that he grew a lot uh, that I got to smoke a bunch there. And it is one of the most lit highs that I've ever experienced. You guys have smoked the same weed, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's kind of like those old centerfolds at high times in the 70s. It doesn't look super pretty, uh, but when you smoke it, you realize why it's so special. Yeah, I, I got my education like before I started working at high times, which this was uh, the early 2000s when I met Dan. I, I smoked weed every day, but I honestly thought all the names was just made up i'm a very cynical person and i'm very against advertising and <laughs> i just didn't know you know i grew up in a place where nobody grew weed people smoked it and you got it in a baggie from mexico and that's all uh that's as far as my education went and as i was getting an education and dan was a huge part of that when this nigerian came around it was like even within the <laughs> hallowed halls it was like this is special we don't need to have everybody know that this is around and also if you looked at it you wouldn't think it was the shit. and it was also just something like really my entree into the appreciation of cannabis on that level i had a huge appreciation for it as something that was for me, very personally helpful, just as you said, or as Val said, some, some was huge for me. Mm. Uh, but that Nigerian was one of the first times I really focused in on a specific kind of cannabis, how it affected me, the story behind it, and really started to open up this whole world that I still find um, obviously really fascinating. Yeah, and I think Dan's adjective is very apt, electric. The high from that shit is electric. It really, like, wakes everything up. It's the first time I remember having a, a very trippy experience off of just cannabis. It was off of Nigerian haze, right? That and Short's Blueberry, which is, you know, maybe we'll get honorable mention at some point in this. But, yeah, it is something that, like, your senses are so heightened, like every sense, your, you know, your audio sense, your visual sense, everything just just up here. And it's really incredible. Uh, if you're listening to this and you are not sold on this, I don't know what else we can say to you. You should, <laughs> you should smoke some Nigerian haze for damn sure. And listen to some fella while you do it. And we'll, yeah, we'll bump what we're legally allowed to right now. there it is okay so moving on down the list we did a two-part special on high times founder tom Fursad, who was a legendary smuggler and a figure in the underground press in that episode he's smuggling cannabis from colombia all right now i don't know if we have specific information on exactly what this strain was but dan there's no one better to ask than you as a longtime high times employee 
uh, and a cannabis authority. What strain are we talking about when we're talking about Tom Prasad's Colombian smuggled weed? You know, that's tough to say. There's so Colombia is a huge country and a huge producer of cannabis, and and many different regions exist in microclimates. So mm-hmm. there's uh, Colombian gold. There's uh, Punta Roja. There's a lot. There's so many uh, regional strains, um, whether it be near Medellin or Cali or, you know, there, there's just so many places and so many different strains. But it's hard to really pin down exactly which he was bringing. Uh, but mm. anything that you brought at those at that time from Colombia would be a big hit, especially in the streets of New York City. I mean, it's such a huge upgrade at the time, I would imagine, to anything that was coming from Mexico or possibly even Jamaica. I think the Colombian really uh, took the cake as far as what was really popular. And Thai was obviously very popular, but much harder to get. So anything from Southeast Asia would be more difficult to smuggle over, whereas in those days it wasn't quite as difficult to fly to South America, pick up a load and bring it back uh, until about 73, 74-ish um, there was really almost no monitoring of plane traffic going back and forth. Hmm. Yeah, this is the era of the of you know pre DEA weed smuggling, uh, small planes and boats and these you know very swashbuckling figures who really loved weed, uh, but were also risk takers and entrepreneurs. And Tom Fursad was able to bring a product into New York that people didn't know about, but once they knew about it, they wanted it. And, you know, there's a bunch of different stories about the founding of High Times and, and how that happened. But one of them that certainly is evidenced is the first centerfold was a bunch of Colombian weed, which just so happened to be the same kind of weed the publisher of the magazine was selling and creating a market for. So, oh. you know, it's it's almost an advertorial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, that is so subversive, man. That's pretty amazing to, like, not only be the guy smuggling the weed in, but to start the publication that sort of low-key is just advertising that shit. You know, it makes me think of, like, I did some reporting for the local NPR station here, and I was it was about seshes, right? It was about illegal farmers markets for weed in L.A. And the context of the story was like, oh, look, as a journalist, I'm telling you that this is what's going on in your city. And the subtext was, uh, as a weed guy, I'm telling you where you can get cheap weed so you don't have to go to the dispensary. You know what I mean? But yeah, I I love uh, the spirit of of using the press for that purpose. Fantastic. All right, so let's move on down the list. Uh, We are going to get to a very special strain uh, that was part of a very special episode about some very special friends of the show, Wham!, uh, Valerie, Nona, and their Malawi strain. Bean, you want to tell us a little bit about Malawi? Yeah, I've got, uh, you know, I started uh, hanging out at the Wham Garden and volunteering with them around 2010. Uh, but that garden, that compassionate garden, goes back to the 70s. Um, this is an organization, and you can listen to the episode, that grew cannabis collectively to provide it for free or at low cost to uh, really ill people and people who couldn't afford it. 
um, a really inspiring story. Uh, and in the 70s, they were gifted this uh, big, it, it came basically like in a big bamboo stalk and inside was the smuggled land race weed from Malawi, which is uh, in Africa. And it's really legendary weed in Africa. Any African weed smoker knows about the Malawi gold. Um, and of course, back then, weed came with a free prize in every bud, <laughs> which was seeds. seeds. Yes, seeds, glorious seeds. <laughs> so this was smuggled specifically to Wham so that they could have of course, the weed, but so they could have the seeds. And for decades, they acclimated that strain to their growing environment in Santa Cruz, California, um, and have still to this day, that uh, strain direct lineage is, is in their hands. And, you know, this was a favorite of a lot of patients who were seeking specific effects, the more uplifting somebody, you know, in addition to having a really debilitating chronic illness, you're also very likely to suffer from depression, lethargy, loss of appetite. Um, and when we talk about it being electric, as you say, that's amazing if you're at an Afrobeat concert and it's minute 27 of the jam, but it's also amazing if you are really worn down from dealing with an illness and you want to bring that spirit level uh, back up. And so to be in the Wham Garden surrained by land race strain from, from Africa and growing for this really high purpose, uh, I have a deep connection and, and love for that strain for sure. Amazing. And Dan, do you have any uh, personal history with the Malawi strain. What can you tell us about it? Uh, you know, I've tried it a few times and it just reminds me basically of all African sativas in that way, but it's kind of the king of African sativas. So uh, if it's famous in Africa, then you know it's got that, that buzz to it. We don't use enough of those genetics in some of the crosses that we have because growers don't like to grow those strains. They tend to take longer to flower and they tend to be less heavy and they're very finicky. So it's it's our loss uh, because I think, you know, we really could benefit more from those genetics being infused into more of these hybrids that we smoke. When you have a place where it's 120 degrees in the summertime, uh, the plant has to adapt to that and it has to protect mm -hmm. itself. And the plant's protection is our uh, joy, basically, because... The more the plant protects itself, the more of that those essential oils that it produces. If these essential oils are protecting the bud, do the more fruity ones protect the buds better in the heat? Do the more gassy ones protect the buds better in a mountainous region? Like, what's the difference? I think the fruitiness in the wild more is about attracting birds mm -hmm. to take the seeds and take them far away and poop them out so that they grow somewhere else. And I think it's really that fruitiness is to attract pollinators and to attract mm. seed spreaders. Because if you can mimic a mango and then, you know, sell that bird a seed and that bird takes you down the road and plants you somewhere, you know, far enough away, then you just established a whole new territory. All right. Botany of desire. Yeah. Again, it goes back to botany of desire and the plant is using the birds and it's convincing the bird that it's fruit. And then the bird basically just, decides, okay, I'll have a seed. And then the plant spreads further, you know, 
in the region, and that's really what they're wired to do. Shout out weed birds. <laughs> Shout out weed birds, man. You know, birds, the original, you know, Grateful Dead tour. It was birds. <laughs> <my> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So moving right along to the final one we've got on this short list here is the cannabis that washed ashore in the country of Brazil many, many years ago. Of course, I'm talking about our live episode, The Summer of the Cans. This is an incredible story. It's one that many, many American stoners have never heard. And the strain in these cans that washed up on shore was tie stick. And I mean, my favorite part of that story is that, you know, the description of opening the can and the way that this weed just burst out because it was pressurized into these cans uh, and vacuum sealed. Uh, And so this is sticky, sticky, Thai stick weed, right? Now, I have some experience with this cannabis. Of course, I grew up in Thailand. I didn't smoke when I lived there because I'd moved away at 13 and moved to America to smoke Mexican weed for whatever reason. But when I went back in 2003, my brother and I, we smoked a whole lot of this weed. We would get it basically like just bushels of it. It was very, very cheap. And I would describe the high as electric, similar to the Nigerian haze. It didn't have the same sort of depth and intensity, but like I was saying before, it really fit the weather. So of course, Thai stick in America goes back to American military deployed in Southeast Asia that then brought this cannabis back and it became a thing because people were like, oh my God, is it dipped in opium? It gets you so fucking high, but it's just really incredible weed. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's very electric. It was, I think, originally used for tea. And so that's why a lot of growers, you know, it it has hermaphroditic tendencies, like a lot of Southeast Asian strains. And that's why growers tend to avoid these as well. Because when when you grow for hashish, as people do in other regions in the Middle East and other places, you select plants for short stature and lots of resin production and no seeds. And you want to make sure you get as much hash out of them as possible. But if you're boiling them for medicine, it's not as important. So that's why I think they're a little wispier. And then you have the differences between high land tie and low land tie. So if you're up in the mountains, you know, 6,000 feet, uh, it's a very different plant than when you're in the valley at uh, zero. So really the plants are very different, but at the same time, they all share ancestry and it is very electric. It's very much a sativa buzz. They, they're called tie sticks because they were actually tied. You know, they would be basically harvested branches that would then be tied uh, with string even before they were dry, basically, while they were still moist, uh, tied up and then dried that way. So they were very, very dense. You know, an eighth of tie stick would look like a gram of something else. And as you mentioned, the, the soldiers that were coming back from uh, Vietnam were bringing Vietnamese, Thai, uh, Laotian weed back and blowing people's minds. I mean, really uh, changing the course of history with that, just like it changed the course of history. When those cans showed up on the beaches in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, that was 1987. People were not used to that kind of cannabis in any way, shape or form. And it really did mm-hmm. change the culture entirely, changed the slang changed a lot and people still talk about it to this day as the summer of the cans and dalada is still a way to describe something really amazing that's can that's the cans 
<laughs> and I have to say, we, we mentioned it in the episode itself, but Dan, you were the one who, who hipped us to that story, and, and uh, it's an amazing one. And of course, what's most amazing for the people of Brazil is uh, that weed only showed up because it was dumped off the side of a smuggling boat headed for somewhere completely different. Uh, yeah. So, you know, always the story with weed is you try to stop it, and weed totally disregards your prohibition and finds its way to the hearts and lungs of the people. Yeah, absolutely. In so many of these stories that, that we're talking about here, the prohibition just spiraled the, the production and development of these different strains further. You know what I mean? Weed really won't stop. In fact, if you want people to just like proliferate weed at a greater rate, you should try to prohibit it because, you know, like it really is like it's trying to like stick your finger in the top of a soda bottle. It's just going to come spraying out anyway. <laughs> Even now, when it's common knowledge to just average people that the war on drugs is a failure, we still see enforcement happening in the same way. I mean, here in California, for example, legal cannabis tried to suppress the gray market that existed before. And what happened? the gray market exploded. I mean, like, you know, there's more money in black market weed in California now than there is in dispensaries by far. And it's because the lesson here for the capitalists, right, is that if you try to put reins on this thing, it's just gonna go even wilder. You know what I mean? Yeah, even locally, I'll jump in and mention in the 90s, Giuliani's crackdown here in New York City on weed spots is what really... Uh, gave birth to the rise of the delivery services, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, there was the Pope of Dope and he was like the only one. And then once those weed spots got cracked down on, suddenly everybody had a delivery service and, you know, the price went up, but the quality and the uh, quantity improved dramatically. Yeah. And I'll say with, to bring it full circle with the tie stick and, and kind of round out our discussion of the land races where I uh, used to live in California was where the tie stick shipments would come in, literal shipments on big boats. And somebody took me out once who had been a smuggler of the era and took me to the actual beach and said, we'd wait here at night and there'd be signals back and forth to the ship. So if you got a signal that said, hey, don't come, uh, the ship would leave. But if the signal was all clear and then they had protocols with smaller boats, all to get this tie stick, people would take these risks. And what what's just strikes me as the best part of our job and our sort of time here in weed is, yes, you know, we're seeing this incredible legalization with its many joys and its many pitfalls. Uh, but we can also talk to people who literally smuggled tie stick. And it's just uh, amazing to bridge that gap. And that kind of brings us to the hybrid era, which is when we're going to start getting into these seven strains that change the game. And, and when we talk about the hybrid era, this is when different land races from different places in the world, some very far apart, come together and are bred together to create plants specifically that can grow in the North American climate. And so w what is that story in a nutshell, Dan? Why do people and how do people start taking these different land races and breeding them to create hybrids? 
Right. Well, specifically, a lot of it had to do with the hippie trail. People could still go to Afghanistan in that time. They could still travel throughout the Middle East and North Africa and procure these seeds. And once they were able to bring those back and cross those hashy indicas with the, you know, either Southeast Asian, African or South American sativas, they were able to produce these hybrids that would finish instead of, you know, 85, 90 days, they'd finish in 55, 60 days. And that makes a big difference when you're in Northern California, Oregon, uh, Vancouver Island, places like that where people came back to start these homesteads and start farming. And so a lot of people attribute the hybrid thing to Holland, but it didn't really kick off in Holland. It kicked off in uh, the Northwest United States. Later on, as they became more and more fearful of prohibition, they started going over to Holland. In Holland, there was much more of a hash culture. There really was not a flower culture at all. And mm. it was the arrival of some of these uh, reefer refugees in the 80s that really kickstarted the seed industry in Holland and the flour being sold at coffee shops. And that ended up being the place where this was taken into overdrive. The entire sort of production of seeds and all of that, that couldn't have been an industry in the United States. You would have been busted immediately. So mm. Amsterdam and Holland in general was an oasis at those times where you could breed seeds and you could sell them. I mean, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> 100% legit, but uh, people could mm. get away with it and make a decent dime. And so people like Neville and Sam Skunkman were able to start companies and then those companies begat other companies. And by the mid-90s, there was a, a bunch of companies all creating hybrids and then eventually polyhybrids. And that's really where we get many of the strains that we have now. So what you're saying, Dan, is the reason people didn't just take uh, Maui Waui or Punta Roja and start planting it in the United States was because it would take way too long to flower and the winter would come and you wouldn't get good weed. That's why homegrown was, as you say, like a derisive term. And uh, it's really also shows that again, as you were saying, Abdullah, they tried to put their thumb on the soda bottle by cracking down on the border and saying, oh, this weed is being smuggled in. We're gonna create the DEA. We're gonna have border enforcement. And all it did was uh, spray out the sides uh, mm -hmm. in the form of people taking different seeds from different places and creating new strains of weed uh, that would grow in the United States. And the first one on our list of game-changing weed strains is skunk number one. Uh, I will just say I can remember the first skunky weed I ever encountered uh, it's an acquired taste because you're used to thinking of a skunk, but it's pretty amazing. What about what about you guys? Yeah, I mean, for me, the same. I remember the first skunk weed I tasted was uh, when the dead came around Boston. And I, I think I took a bong hit and was just transported to another atmosphere. I, it felt like a psychedelic at the time. Uh, and it tasted so different to anything that we had, whether it be from Mexico or Canada or anywhere else. Um, so, mm. you know, and there's legends about of the roadkill skunk and, and you know, uh, of the 80s. And, and it really has a, a an aura about it and is also something that's been bred into so many other strains. 
Yeah, it has that burning rubber almost base to it. That's that's so crazy. I remember, and this actually, in retrospect, I realized that this is what, what I must have had because it was in high school. It was in 10th or 11th grade. Some kid had gotten an ounce of something from his brother at college, and he was breaking it up, and he was selling it. It was like fairly expensive for the time. It was like 60 bucks an eighth, right? And I bought it in school, and I do not know how I got through that whole day. It was stinking in my pockets. I remember my mom smelling it in my room and thinking like that it was like just dirty clothes and, and body odor and being like, <laughs> what the fuck? Or like, you know, it's like, what is that smell? On its own, like the way we're describing it, it's not an appetizing smell. But when you smell it, you can tell it's weed, right? And it smells really good. It just smells potent and, and robust. And like, you know that it's going to do something different than weed that does not smell like that you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah it's a very distinct smell as as george clinton famously said uh something smells like a skunk and i want some <laughs> <laughs> and i don't think there's a terpene called skunk and all but there should be because it is a very distinct weed smell i always had the idea that like if a giant radioactive skunk attacked the world only stoners would be able to band together and, and <laughs> fight it off. Or make it president, man. I mean, that sounds like <laughs> a cool-ass sounding animal. President Skunk. I'm, you know, I'm in. I'm down. Uh, <laughs> and so, as we said, we don't, you know, these histories are murky. You know, we know that the Macintosh apple was created in 1811 by John Macintosh, an apple breeder in Matilda Township, Canada. Weed histories are not like that. Um, but what we do know about skunk number one is that it is from one of California's original underground cannabis breeding outfits, the legendary Sacred Seeds, and that it was one of the first uh, true hybrid cannabis strains. The land races that were used to breed it were uh, an Afghani, an Acapulco Gold, and a Colombian gold. And by combining these, they were able to get a plant with a lot of that sativa effect, but that would mature much, much quicker. And of course, that's what made it attractive to growers. Right. And that's so interesting. So Dan, you mentioned this before as well, that, you know, flavor and potency has a lot to do with it. But yield and hardiness and the economic factors of that weed make a huge difference, right? What we're talking about is desirable traits. Um, so it really boils down to what the breeder wants to accomplish when they're crossing one strain with another. And in the 90s, it became all about bag appeal. So, and also fast flowering. If you, I mean, that's why AK-47 is not named for a gun. It's called AK-47 because it finishes in 47 days, which was thought to be like a really great achievement. And so bag appeal was important, but also to the grower, flowering time was important because it minimizes the risk between harvests, minimizes the time between harvests. And uh, now, of course, desirable traits are slightly different because of concentrate production and and all kinds of other reasons. So it is interesting. And we talked about hash being chosen for resin production and and other plants, sativas being chosen for, for 
brewing into tea. So it's really up to the breeder what those desirable traits are. And I guess the marketplace also plays a role. Yeah. And just so to round it out on skunk number one, uh, as we said, these uh, strains are really also the building blocks of a lot of our more modern strains. And skunk number one is probably best known for being the uh, part of the lineage of a strain called cheese, which is huge in the UK. And just want to say a friendly shout out and hello to all our listeners in the UK who definitely know about the cheese. Yeah, cheese, man. All right. So moving on to the next item on our list of game changing strains, we've got Northern Lights number five. This is another classic first generation hybrid. Northern Lights number five was quite literally the fifth of its name, hence the number five. The first varietal known as Northern Lights was 100% indica, a result of crossing several Afghani land races bred for high potency, a fast, heavy harvest, and a high bud to leaf ratio prized by growers. Northern Lights number one was absolutely a standout in its heyday. So we're talking about some of the things you just touched on, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It really changed the game in that way because everybody was able to grow it. And I'm not not just in the nor- Northwest, but once that spread and those strains spread, a lot of them were still seeded. So people would grow that wherever they were able to find a bag of that. So it really became the building block of a lot of Kentucky and East Coast strains as well as those bags traveled because at the time there was not uh sensimia was 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 pretty rare so you would wind up with some seeds in there and if you bought a bag of it and had some seeds and planted it suddenly you had better bud than anyone in town and that really did uh change what people were growing all around the united states and canada yeah absolutely this was one of the first strain names that I heard. If somebody had Northern Lights, you would take like one bong rip of it and it would kind of just fuck your shit up. Uh, And I remember that very distinctly because it was also this introduction to weed that costs more because it was of a certain kind, right? Um, Kind, but. So going back to the text here, by the time we get to Northern Lights number five, a bit of Thailand race sativa has found its way into the genetic mix, bringing fruity flavor notes and a skyrocketing cerebral high, maybe we can call it electric, that seems to be our go-to adjective today, to the party. And Sensi Seeds won the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam. You guys, I'm sure, have some stories about this. With that strain in 1989, 1990, and 1992, ancient ancient history we're talking about here, uh, <laughs> while producing large amounts of Northern Lights number five seeds that would find their way all over the world. Northern Lights number five changed the game primarily by being a truly kick-ass strain that's uh, in its uh, encyclopedia entry that's easy to grow indoors or outdoors in a wide variety of climates, and that encouraged countless hobbyist growers and underground commercial cultivators to grow it allowing the mass market to develop a taste for something far more elevated than the typical swag. Yeah, we talked about the reluctance of growers to want to grow sativa-dominant strains because of the amount of time it takes and the hassle, but growers loved growing Northern Lights Number 5, so it wound up everywhere and it really spread far and wide and is also uh, one of the building blocks for a lot of the strains that came after as well. So, you know, we're really talking about the basis of so much of of the poly hybrids that we smoke today. 
Can you name like a handful that some of our listeners might be familiar with that contain some Northern Lights lineage? Well, the first big one was Northern Lights uh, times Haze. And that was, you know, a game changer again uh, after that was crossed. And I think that was a Neville cross. And that is the first. And then, I mean, it's hard to think of a strain that doesn't have it in it in some ways because of uh, how few strains were used at that time as mm. the basis of the breeding that was done in Holland and what much of the general public was able to purchase and continue to grow and breed with themselves. Ah, so it's everywhere. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would say the skunk and the NL5 are just part of the basics. And if you were to do a, uh, you know, a genetic background on these, you would find uh, remnants of them in almost everything we smoke. I think a really great way to kind of think of an analogy of how all of this works is, you know, we've been talking a lot about the breeders and the work that the breeders have done. And these are people operating in the underground. These are people taking great risks uh, and they have a huge love of, of weed, but they're also trying uh, to meet the market's demands. And of course, we, the smokers, have our role to play and you vote with your dollars, whether that's at a dispensary or with a dealer. And in between are the growers. And I think if you think of it as like music, uh, the breeders are the musicians, the smokers are the listeners, and in between the growers are like a DJ. If they try it and they get the dance floor is pumping with this strain, well, that's going to mm. spread. And if they try it and people don't dig it, hey, you, 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 there's a lot of plants and a lot of strains that didn't change the game. So these are like the hits. These are like what went out to the growers, the growers went out to the smokers, and that's what makes a strain become game-changing. And so we're going to see that dynamic with all of these game-changing strains. Yeah, and that's a very nice analogy, Bean. I think it, it really puts a lot of this into context. I think, you know, a person who goes into a dispensary and reads a whole menu of strains doesn't realize how unique it is that there's all these different kinds of strains built on all kinds of different lineage from all parts of the world in this place that there is there are charts for weed. I mean, you know, uh, we just got done judging for the Emerald Cup. It's a competition for cannabis in California. And I mean, how many different strains were there in there? Right. This is this is rare. I mean. Maybe on the Silk Road, there was that one really cool merchant, you know what I mean, who just had like, <laughs> like he had like all kinds of different shit and they were like, oh, it's like, yo, uh, you know, Bobo's in town. This is really unique. And, you know, it, it, I think that in the climate of legal weed, there is a little bit of, uh, you know, taking it for granted that happens. I think there are kids who are of smoking age today, right, who have always had this menu of just, you know, cannabis that you can get you can follow your nose to all kinds of different experiences but it, it took a lot of history and it took a lot of people risking their lives and a lot of people you know having uh great intuitions and great ideas that uh you know led us to all these different strains indeed that is true and the role that holland and amsterdam and the people there played in that uh can't really be overstated because if they hadn't done what they did, uh, we'd really be at the at the mercy of 
whatever was passed around and there wouldn't be such a widespread uh, genetic pool for us, even though there's a lot of poly hybrids that, you know, people complain about sometimes. The, the reality is we have such a variety to choose from, and it's because of the brave people who uh, relocated themselves and then took many risks even over there to uh, spread those seeds. And again, we have to thank, in a way, prohibition, because while every other, you know, we talked about how there's different varieties of apple and potato and tomato, those all got winnowed down to whatever's going to be the most commercial kind of tomato, what's going to be the easiest to package and ship. And if you look at those supermarket tomatoes, they ain't the best tomatoes. Uh, and there's very few varietals unless you go to a farmer's market or whatever. Yes. And you know what, Bean? That is also an excellent case to make for boycotting corporate weed for small batch weed. Because is that what you want, dear listener? Do you want to walk into a supermarket that only has like a couple kinds of weed? You know what I mean? Uh, no, we want this great variety. And it's thanks to all of the, you know, different levels of demand for this shit that we still have it. Because in a matter of years, we could end up with just the flavorless tomatoes that you get at your average supermarket. And you have to really go looking to find something any better, right? That's bullshit. You can read more about that in our white paper, Blue Dream or Blue Nightmare, yeah. <laughs> the coming winnowing of the cannabis gene pool. Blue Dream might be Blue Nightmare in itself to me, but that's, a, <laughs> that's for another episode. <laughs> uh, but Dan, you mentioned Amsterdam, and now we're going to get to that era with our next game-changing strain and, and a towering figure in that world. Uh, which is Neville's Haze. And this speaks to the story of how this early breeding work in California in some ways uh, fuels and informs the Amsterdam scene that spreads it uh, around the world. So the original Haze strains date back to the late 1960s and a group of pioneering seed breeders called the Haze Brothers. And they basically discovered that if you could find microclimates with longer growing seasons before it starts to get cold, then you can experiment with some of these sativa strains. And they ultimately bred something called original haze uh, that had genetics from Thailand, Mexico, and Colombia. So still all sativa, but they managed to get it acclimated to California. But that was still just uh, servicing kind of the small market around them. Uh, there's no weed co, you know, and there and there won't be for decades. Uh, but what ends up happening is that original haze makes its way to Amsterdam and into the hands of a, a man named Neville, who produced his own version of it, Neville's haze, uh, and because of the sort of legal protections in Amsterdam, particularly around seeds, was able to proliferate those seeds around the world. And that really um, is obviously hugely game-changing. And I know, Dan, uh, from your many years uh, as a judge at different cannabis cups in Amsterdam, you've interacted uh on a personal level with a lot of these old amsterdam breeders so like 
what do you know of Neville's Hayes and what more generally do you know about the role that Amsterdam plays in all of this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy as far as how the Hayes actually got to Neville. I, uh, you know, the Hayes brothers and possibly Sam Skunkman's trip over to Holland may have been the, the catalyst to bring that Hayes over. And Neville got a cut of that and that became Neville's Hayes. That's kind of the prevailing theory. At the same time, he was able to develop that into... Uh, a really amazing strain that he spread all over the world and he took the risk of taking the first ad in high times and basically saying i'm selling seeds Uh, i put out a catalog and if you sent him if you were brave enough to send him a money order uh, over to holland he would send back the seeds and that very quickly became a very popular thing and those uh, neville's hate seeds spread around the world and again i would say there's not a lot of sativa dominant strains that we smoke now that don't have some of that Neville's haze. And uh, sadly, Neville passed away a couple of years ago. He was able to breed some amazing stuff. And his legacy is that people are still smoking it to this day as the original haze and in many other forms. Wow, that's incredible. And look, I mean, rest in peace, Neville. And, and this is truly, you know, like one of the marks you can leave on weed world right is is developing something like this i mean you know think about jack hare right how many people know that name because of his strain who probably haven't read emperor wears no clothes necessarily but that name will always be synonymous with cannabis culture right and i I think that's really interesting that's why i'm glad we're doing this episode and and picking your brain about this dan because you know a lot of people are smoking cannabis that is descended of neville's haze right every day like you know like it's it's you're, as you're saying it's in so much of our weed and they probably don't even realize it so if you're sitting there all stone listening to this take a puff for neville uh you know he's got at least a puff of your weed <laughs> yeah like they say there's what like 40 atoms of jesus in all of our bodies yeah. <laughs> i've got way more atoms of neville's haze yeah. uh, in me at this yeah. point and jesus and... might not have even existed but as we've established <laughs> in this episode his strain definitely did <laughs> we should also mention even in the confines of amsterdam and australia he was still hounded by the dea and by interpol it really led to a lot of bad things for him as far as how he had to end up living his life and it's it's you know he really took the risks and suffered the blows amsterdam became this kind of star wars cantina type place where weed outlaws and refugees from all over the world could if you could get there they were not going to extradite you for weed crimes Mm. so uh, whether you were one step ahead of the law or two or three steps ahead of the law all of a sudden people from all over the world not just brought their cannabis with them to add to this melting pot in Amsterdam, but also brought their own knowledge and their unique experiences. And uh, Amsterdam has long been a center of free thinking and freedom. That space that was allowed for cannabis is represented not just in the people who came, but in these new kinds of plants that were then exported uh, all over the world. So once again, just this attempt to 
put a stopper on the bottle, backfires, and all of a sudden people are smoking Neville's Haze all over the world, uh, and a, certainly a, a strain that changed the game. Speaking of strains that we are all smoking all of the time, this next one is absolutely ubiquitous in California, in Southern California, OG Kush. This shit is just the most smokable weed on earth. I think, you know, there, there's been a bunch of different variations of OG Kush, but the common thread is that you can just smoke this weed all day and that's what people in Southern California like to do. All over California like to do is just smoke weed all day. And this is that strain, so from the text here, at last, we enter the second generation hybrid era when cannabis breeders began to cross hybrids and other hybrids in hopes that a magic varietal would emerge and prove greater than the sum of its parts. And that brings us to one of the most iconic strains of all time, OG Kush. So remember when we noted that the story of underground cannabis breeding sometimes gets a bit murky? Well, nothing makes that point clearer than the origin story of OG Kush which, with the help of a lot of rap lyrics, made its way from humble beginnings and unknown parentage to the upper echelon of the cannabis strain pantheon. And I think a lot of people would definitely agree with that. Some East Coasters might argue on behalf of Sour Diesel. So, Dan, what can you tell us about OG Kush? Yeah, what we know about OG Kush is that it made its way from... Uh, to the West Coast from Florida. Uh, once it got to Los Angeles, uh, Josh D was the guy who kind of proliferated and spread it up and down. Uh, a lot of people say OG is ocean grown or all kinds of other original gangster. So, you know, that's always a question as well. But the interesting thing is that there was some controversy over the fact that it might have some chem genetics because that Florida strain may have come from some seeded chem that made its way down to Florida from the East Coast. So everybody kind of wants to claim it. And you're not a strain in the strain game unless multiple people claim credit. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is it's, it's very difficult to claim credit for a strain anyway. I mean, it came from somewhere else. And if it's a bag seed strain, it's one in a million. You know, it's like a four-leaf clover. And you discovered it, but... That doesn't make it yours. And so there's lots of great stories about it. But all we really know is, you know, it's stood the test of time. It's an incredible variety that's beloved. It's mentioned in tons of rap songs. And OG Kush die. OG Kush die. OG Kush die. OG Kush die. You know, everybody loves uh, OG Kush. Well, I would say not everybody. Every strain has its naysayers. But every a lot of people really dig it, and it has so many crosses and hybrids that have been made out of it as well. So it's one of those strains. I think it's really interesting. You know, again, we're getting into the competitiveness that comes around weed, right? And this this has always felt like a very American thing to me, right? Uh, you know, for thousands of years, you have cannabis that's, you know, not necessarily treated as a commodity, right? But in the United States, there is all kinds of weed beef. And it seems very counterintuitive when you think about cannabis and its effects and the communities that usually form around it, the type of thinking that it promotes, right? The competitiveness in cannabis, it is like some serious white boy shit. You know what I mean? That you see constantly... <laughs> And, you know, the beef around OG Kush, I've heard it so many times, people arguing, you know, uh, people disputing the idea of Crippy, 
uh, you know, or, or whatever saying like, oh no, this originated here or there, wherever. Yeah, I, I think it, it lends itself to a really strange tenor uh, in the world of weed, right? And then I, I would love to hear both your opinions on that. What is with the competitiveness around strains, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I mean, the truth is, it's like you mentioned about Jack Herrer or anything else. If that strain is legendary, people want to attach themselves to it. Now, Jack's was named for him at, in his honor, but if you can attach yourself to something and there's no real history or the history is a little murky, uh, then you can kind of taste a little bit of that legend too. It's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. It's that precious and it's very, very tempting in many cases. And like I said, no strain is really owned by anybody anyway. You know, mm. you may have discovered it, but you got it from somewhere else. It came from a seed that came from either two other strains or three other strains or however it, it came to pass. But no one owns this plant. And I think... Uh, well said. Yeah, and the people who tend to attach themselves in some ways end up wondering if that was even the best idea. Sometimes it's uh, <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be, and all the arguing is really not what the plant is all about. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, the plant helps us, and we are servants to the plant, and taking credit for this strain or that strain. I mean, it's great if you can show that lineage and that's where it came from but with the history being so unwritten <coughs> it's very easy to for some people to take advantage of that as well amen bro yeah and i think for the people listening this is a huge point because we have all kinds of listeners who have different relationships to cannabis to the extent this kind of stuff is interesting and fun it's great the second anybody makes you annoyed about weed <laughs> Just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this can be one of the things that really puts people off about weed culture. And we're huge weed culture fans and mm -hmm. participate in weed culture. We're all about weed culture. Uh, but when you become uh, annoying about it or pedantic about it or, as you say, competitive about it, mm. You really risk putting people off something that's so great and, and kind of taking the worst of the dominant culture, this competitiveness, this possessiveness, and bringing it into weed. And I would also say for another music metaphor... Um, oh, Bean's really got a lot of these today, man. I'm loving it. Let's hear this one. <laughs> Here it comes. This is, I, I'm proud of this one. A lot of the people who are real originators don't always get the do. And a lot of the people who are good at self-promotion uh, fill that gap. And I think like once one year at the uh, Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, uh, the theme was honoring hip hop music. And we were honored to have Busy B and Coke LaRock. I'm not a huge hip hop person. Yeah, but those are originators. Yeah, I was at best vaguely aware of their existence. But as I got a chance to meet them and Dan giving me a lot of education about it to see they were really, really the originators among the originators mm -hmm. of this huge global phenomenon. They told me that they started some of the earliest hip hop was at parties that they threw specifically to draw crowds so they could sell weed. <laughs> Amazing. So it shows you how foundational weed is to hip hop culture um, but so the people who 
make a big noise about how they invented weed are to be ignored. Yeah. Um, and and don't let that uh, put you off from wanting to know more about this incredible breeding culture or this plant. And that, of course, leads us to our next game changer, which is possibly the most contentious <laughs> origin story of them all. <laughs> To the point where I am literally just going to throw it to Dan. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> and see how he wants to, to play this one. And this is, I'm just going to say, Chemdog and Sour Diesel as a duo of game-changing strains that are very closely related. Is being taking a side? It is, was there a slightly different tone when you said one of those? <laughs> well, I couldn't think of a better segue because... One of the things about Sour Diesel is AJ named it Sour because it was able to somehow uh, break up people's friendships and relationships and people <laughs> people's obsession with getting the it's cutting true. or getting the. It doesn't weed. taste sour if you think about it. Yeah, it tastes. I mean, it's it's like it's gassy, but it's not sour. But that's such an interesting uh, <laughs> origin story for that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting and. You know, it does kind of go back to the chem dog, which goes back even further. So everything has, you know, everything and even where that comes from had to find its way there somehow. But when, what, who popularized it um, is the guy we call chem dog uh, in Western Mass. And he basically discovered a bag seed uh, of some incredible bud that he purchased way back. I would say I think it was 91 uh, on Dead Tour. Deer Creek, Indiana, and he purchased it from Joe Brand and another guy who I'm spacing on the name. But when he got home, he ordered some more through the mail and there was 12 or 13 seeds in there and he popped them and those became Chem A, Chem B, Chem C, Chem D. So that original Chem D came out of that. And to make a long story short, uh, a few people within his crew had access to that um, there were some trades made with people in Staten Island, and ultimately the chem was crossed, and people don't know exactly to what because it happened in kind of a chaotic garden, but uh, there was a guy named Weasel, and, and he was growing super skunk, so a lot of people think the skunk and the chem uh, created the sour, and AJ got that cut, and the rest is history because... I'm also pretty stoned now, but it's like you're describing <laughs> like a cartoon to me. Yeah, you're like, and then the weasel went and got this skunk. Man. <laughs> I was gonna say any story that includes, and there was a guy named Weasel, yeah. where Weasel is like the hero, is a good story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but at that same time was the time of the crackdowns on weed spots in New York and the birth of delivery services. And that strain became the most desirable strain. I've heard of quarter ounces back then selling for $250. So you're talking about a thousand dollar ounce, you know, you're talking about, you know, wall street types that are just willing to pay whatever they can to have the, what they deem the best, but it really did take over the town and so much so that a lot of people call it New York Sour Diesel. And there's a bunch of other versions out there in the world. Uh, the one that I co-sign is the AJ Sour Diesel, our friend Joe. Oh, yeah. That's the AJ. That's the that's the one most coveted. And even different, you know, you would want the May AJ and not like the August AJ because the way the seasons work. So before I get too into the weeds, yeah, I'll just say that like, 
like I said, he called it sour because it really did, you know, make people sour in some ways. They, you know, they gave him that nickname, Asshole Joe, because, you know, he could only sell you a quarter ounce. And even if you wanted to pay for more, he wouldn't do it. And so people just called him Asshole Joe. <laughs> it's funny because he's, for a guy with the nickname Asshole Joe, he's actually a very nice guy. Absolutely. <laughs> no, he just had with. to reject people all the time and say no, because people would want to buy the whole harvest. And he had multiple other friends that yeah. needed some, and, and he wanted to spread it around. And then, again, you know, the chem dog wound up, those 13 seeds wound up being uh, the basis for chem dog sister, chem 91, super snow dog. I mean, just so many strains that come out of the chem family, uh, Jeezel and lots of other ones. So it's just super potent. You know, we should get into the effects. I would say it lasts long. I mean, you're high for two hours plus, uh, mm. it's smells amazing. I used to call it narc weed because you could open an eighth of it and people would smell it for miles around. It would narc you out. And we would have to, I mean, this is when sealers became a thing. We would have to vacuum seal even the smallest amounts of chem or sour because you'd get on the subway and get a lot of funny looks if you had it just in a plastic baggie. Yeah. You really had to like, <laughs> you, had, you had to prepare. I traveled around with a sealer on me. I, I would say that I got some of the sourness of sour diesel because it spoiled me uh to a lot of other weed luckily this was like relatively close to when i started coming out to california a lot right but that aj sour diesel it was just like oh it was just a a, a cut above anything else i could get in new york and the other way that aj changed the game for me is he showed me or well i saw him roll a joint uh with the raw perforated filter the long way and he would roll like this crazy tapered joint and i i picked up that technique and i used it for years but yeah shout out him for that technique and shout out grateful dead uh as the source of this incredible magic bean and also we talked about this in our episode about the grateful dead mm -hmm. uh but that was another huge way that cannabis and cannabis genetics through seeds and even clones spread all around the country i think dan you mentioned trying a certain strain in on deadlock for the first time well people weren't just buying weed they were also buying seeds indeed all right so moving on down the list of strains that changed the game we've got a favorite of mine and this is like i feel like a really universal weed sativa weeds often you know a lot of these really heady highs or the really electric highs that we're talking about are too much for a lot of people they can be kind of an acquired taste right uh but granddaddy purple is a legendary strain that kind of works for everybody right it's a really mellow high uh this is a a heavy indica uh and it's definitely a popular strain one that i haven't seen in a while i remember stealing about a quarter pound of it off the set of bon appetit uh i think we're outside <laughs> the statute of limitations now uh but it, it really fit and among other things but it's really fantastic week <laughs> So to go to the text here, Ken Estes was gifted as both a student and an athlete in high school, but not long after he graduated in 1976, a motorcycle accident left him paralyzed from the neck down. After languishing in a rehabilitation center and in a pharmaceutical fog for six months, he befriended a disabled Vietnam vet recovering in the same facility 
who offered him some cannabis. So Estes says that first puff was, quote, the turnaround of my life, which he thereafter dedicated to advocating for cannabis legalization and breeding new varietals with powerful medicinal effects. In 2011, his Bay 11 strain took home top honors at the Cannabis Cup in San Francisco, but he'll always be best known for Granddaddy Purple, a strain he says was gifted to him by a longtime grower from Southern Humboldt County. Dan, what can you tell us about GDP? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those strains that really changed bag appeal as well, because once people saw purple weed, it was like mind-blowing. And I think, you know, other strains that it begat, the Perps and Grape Ape, they have that candy, sweet, grapey flavor. Uh, Mm. There's, of course, there's a backlash where some people were like anti-purple in the Bay for a while because they just had so much purple that they got sick of it a little (laughs) bit. But that, it, you know, that indica high with combined with that grape flavor uh, really is amazing. And when it's grown properly, uh, the taste and effect is, is really incredible. I would just say Ken's granddaddy is the original. Lots of people have other purple strains, uh, but I think a lot of them originated directly from that, from Ken's GDP. And what, where does the purple color come from? Is it is it in the genetics? Is it how it's grown? Yeah, with the GDP, it's in the genetics. With some strains, they turn purple uh, with cold temperatures as they mature. Uh, but those oh. same strains, if they don't get those cold temps, will stay green. So the GDP just starts to turn purple automatically. It, it has to do with its genetics, and that goes back to wherever... You know, its land race was a purple strain, and that was the selections that were made either by people or birds or whoever. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually something I I was really curious about. I was like, is there naturally occurring purple weed anywhere, or is it something you can only get in a really controlled environment? Yeah, I think there is purple weed uh, in Thailand, uh, Highland Thai that we talked about, Highland Vietnamese. I think... You know, the further you get up the mountain, in many cases, the more a strain has a tendency to turn purple. I think the thing that really connects with me in this story, too, is the story of how this plant will reach out and find people in need. You know, here in a in a rehabilitation facility, somebody, you know, struggling and I'm sure the most difficult moment of his life, this plant brings you as he said, the turnaround of his life, that's no small thing. And then he is able through breeding work and through proliferating this very special plant that finds its way into his hands to give back uh, to cannabis. And I think when we look at the people who grow and breed, especially cannabis, it's always people who feel a deep connection to the plant. And that's how they gain the understanding of, you know, Cannabis breeding is is selecting. It's looking at the different plants and matchmaking in a way where it's like a weed yenta uh, <laughs> who puts these plants together and creates something new. Um, and that and that takes us to our our last of the game changing strains is very much in this vein. Uh, it's a strain called Sour Tsunami. Uh, if you know it, it is because it is a high CBD strain. And so what CBD is, is cannabidiol is one of the most therapeutic compounds found in the plant. Uh, And now you can find it in CBD rich strains like ACDC, Canatonic, and Harlequin. But not so long ago, 
CBD was nearly extinct from the gene pool. The reason for that is CBD actually kind of tempers the high of THC. So unwittingly, when people were breeding, as we say, you're the breeder, you're the musician, you want to hit. You want something that people are going to want to buy and grow. In the underground market, that tends to be whatever gets you the most high. And so they bred THC way up and CBD down to the point where it was really hard to find any plants with a lot of CBD in them with a significant amount. When, when you hear us sometimes on this show going off about, uh, you know, one of our sponsors that we work with a lot, Tweedle Farms, who's getting a free shout out here. We talk about how a lot of cannabinoids have been bred out, right? Yeah, THC, botany of desire, right? We want the thing that's going to get us the most fucked up. And over time, that gets bred up. Other stuff gets bred out. And CBD is still a really important part of the cannabinoid experience. It is a very important cannabinoid, just like they all are. So, I mean, this is pretty revolutionary, you know, to, to have a time where these things are being brought back. It really shows another level of understanding uh, in consumption when it comes to cannabis, when you're not just going for the intoxicating factors, but you're going for the therapeutic factors. And it's a blessing that we have this understanding now, because for a long time, we really did not scientifically. Yeah, and we've talked a bunch about how prohibition actually unwittingly pushed these advances forward. New strains, new varietals, hybrids, growing indoors, all. This is an example, the recovery of CBD, of legalization and of the loosening. Because what happened is when the first cannabis testing labs came online around 2010 that were testing large amounts of cannabis before it would go to dispensaries. One, they discovered there's almost no CBD in any of these plants, and they were looking at thousands of different farms. Uh, and so they, they created this group uh, called Project CBD. Huge shout out to them. They're still very active. You can find them online. And they said to the labs, if you come across anything with a significant amount of CBD in it, flag it. We want to talk to the grower. We want to find these strains. We want to work with these strains and bring CBD back. And the first strain that was flagged was Sour Tsunami. It was bred by a gentleman named Lawrence Ringo of the Southern Humboldt Seed Collective. Uh, and it was the first stabilized CBD-rich strain in California. Mm. Uh, obviously, you know, if we went back to like Jesus's time, from what I've always read, you would expect cannabis to be about one-to-one -one THC to CBD. Mm. Uh, and now you're looking at, you know, 20% THC and 0.01 CBD. And, and would it be one-to-one to... -one to all the other cannabinoids as well, like CBN, CBG, would the original land race strain have just sort of kind of had them all in balance? That's interesting. I've never really thought about that as a theory, uh, but it would make sense. I mean, it all came from one place. It had to have all those things in it or somehow develop them over time. So it's interesting to think of, of that. Yeah, it is hard to say. And now, you know, not, not to continually shout out Tweedle Farm, uh, <laughs> but... 
But they also offer now buds that are high in CBG and high in CBN that they've bred through this same process of just find a plant with the most that you can. And instead of selecting for THC, uh, you select for CBD. But where it all really came from is uh, this Lawrence Ringo uh, has passed away, uh, but he gave an interview uh, explaining how and why he had this sour tsunami plant. Maybe somebody has a guess. Uh, why did he keep growing this plant that doesn't necessarily get you as high as other plants that are THC rich? Yeah. Was he just getting pain relief from it inadvertently? It was his wife's favorite for her moon time, as they say. Ah, for cramps, huh? Yeah, look at that. And now CBD is used for cramps all the time. Yeah, and so the lab, uh, you know, tells him what, what he has, and he very graciously worked with them to help Project CBD create new strains. And I can kind of go through what the breeding process was. And I think as a way to, to round this out and show people the work that goes into creating a strain, uh, here's how he described it in an interview with O'Shaughnessy's, which is an excellent publication covering medical cannabis. He started with uh, New York City Diesel seeds. I took the males from that and crossed them onto sour diesel female clones. I crossed the New York City Diesel and the sour diesel for about four years and kept crossing it back to the sour diesel clone. This is not meant for anybody to follow. <laughs> this is to give you a sense. <laughs> Each year, I'd save the mail and do the dusting and make seeds. So this is literally taking the pollen with a little brush and, and putting it onto the flowers. One year, a friend popped in with something that had a nice creamy taste. I thought it was an indica, but it turned out to be a sativa called Ferrari. Uh, I smoked it and decided to cross that to the sour diesel, which I call double diesel, and I call crossed that to a Ferrari clone five years ago. Two years ago, I crossed it back to the sour diesel. Before that, I did this thing called Tsunami. That was the double diesel crossed four times to the sour diesel. Oh, my God. Then crossed to the Ferrari and then crossed back to the sour diesel, and that made sour Tsunami. All right, so... To recap that real quick, start... <laughs> I'm 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 excited for this recap. <laughs> I capped it, and I have no idea what I said. Yeah, oh my god, that's fucking crazy. But uh, I'm really glad this guy keeps such detailed notes, <laughs> you know, and all this shit. Because one day somebody is gonna be deciphering this like five thousand years from now. And they're going to be like, here's how CBD made its comeback. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lawrence Ringo should definitely be praised for that. And it's helped so many people. If you've ever watched a child with epilepsy using CBD, you know how effective it can be when it's made properly. It's life-changing. And if anyone ever wonders why we need you know, weed that doesn't get you high, there's a lot of reasons. And that's probably one of the big ones. At the same time, over in Spain, our friend Hugo... Uh, documented that there was a lot of high CBD strains there. And my suspicion is a lot of those come from Moroccan genetics that made their way in through with hash 
uh, because mm. that, that Moroccan hash does have a very kind of lethargic healing effect that you kind of feel when there's a certain ratio of THC to CBD. And one thing I will tell people is if you are going to use CBD, think about the ratio of CBD to THC because one to one is very different from four to one or two to one. And that's really where you're able to dial those things in. And so uh, it was in Spain, it was the dance hall from reggae seeds that was like the, the birth of a lot of their uh, high CBD genetics. And mm. it's really important that those high CBD genetics, high CBG, CBN is amazing for sleep. So people just need to know that all these cannabinoids and terpenoids and flavonoids interact with each other in amazing ways. And we've only scratched the surface. Wow, that is incredible. Dan, thanks so much for all this background and insight into the strains that we know today. You know, when you look at a menu of strains, you know, you think you're just looking at a bunch of flavors, but each one really has a story behind it. What we just went through is just the highlights. You know, every single strain out there has a story and there's so many, so many different ones. Uh, there are definitely more game-changing strains out there that we haven't touched upon here, but you know, we only have so much time. Thankfully, we'll definitely have more 420s in the future to go through this stuff. But Dan, for the time being, is there another strain you wanna tack onto this list before we close it out? Wow, wow, that is a tough question because there's so many, I mean, I could just fire off. There's uh, GG4, Dosido, Wedding Cake, uh, so many. Mm. But I think I would have to say Tangy because, again, with the amount of breeding that's been done and game changing as far as that sativa category in the Cannabis mm -hmm. Cup and other competitions was so dominated by hazes for so long. And then suddenly Tangy came around and really brought that uh, tangerine citrus flavor mm. uh, with that sativa buzz. So it was different from the haze, which I find more spicy, even sometimes kelpy. The Tangy also, you know, interestingly enough, traces itself back to Calio or California Orange, which is one of those... It could have just easily been on the list uh, of 80s and 90s strains that were p very popular. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say Tangy is the one for me because it changed a whole category in a lot of ways by winning over what was popular in the past. Yeah, and definitely a really distinctive profile. I mean, you know, citrus terpenes are definitely a common thing. You know, you see that a lot and you see them realized in, in really brilliant ways. But Tangy was something different the first time I smoked it. I was like, whoa, it's it's very citrusy and yet it's it's complex. Really fruity, sharp citrusy terps are, are a little harsh, right? But Tangy is smooth and kind of creamy and there's this creaminess in it that you taste in a lot of strains that uh, it's it's been bred with now. But I really love this stuff. I'm not much of a sativa guy and I still love Tangy. Bean, what's your experience with Tangy strain? Actually, I remember being on a friend's farm. Uh, I can't place the year, but I was working at High Times. I was doing the annual harvest tour. Uh, I can recommend <laughs> <laughs> if you have the opportunity. Yeah, we've been on a few and of those. I was on a friend's farm and I smelled a plant unlike any I'd ever smelled before. No one pointed it out to me as go look at this i was literally kind of getting settled and wandering around and i said what is this and they said tangy and i wrote i used to always have one of those reporters spiral notebooks and i wrote it if i write something in all caps 
that's pretty uh, meaningful. Mm-hmm. And in my mind's eye, I can still picture myself capital A, capital N, G I E. Uh, and then to see it, you know, that was one of the cool things about working in weed when it was a smaller world for all of us have that experience of it had was it just a much smaller world 10 years ago. And you could see a plant in somebody's garden and then see it become, you know, one last music metaphor. It was like I saw Tangi in a bar <laughs> playing to 100 people. <laughs> And a year later, it was at Madison Square Garden, you know, and and that's beautiful. Yeah. And it's always been a strain I love. Yeah. And I also stole a few ounces of Tangy <laughs> from the set of Bon Appetit, incidentally. <laughs> well, that was so much fun. Wow. What an enlightening 420 special that was. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't believe it took us this long to get you on, but we got to have you back to get into the weeds, as it were, about strains, about cannabis in general, because you're such a wealth of knowledge. If you enjoy our podcast, definitely listen to Dan's podcast, Grow Bud Yourself. Find it wherever you find podcasts to learn all kinds of shit about cannabis. If you thought you learned something from this episode, you're going to get so, so much more from Dan's show. Bean, thanks so much for uh, all this weed knowledge uh, you know, you've, you've put together here. This was a really, really fun 420. And be safe. Get high. Happy 420 to you. Hope you've got some nice nugs and you're uh, safe and, and happy and, you know, with some people you love for this 420. Hopefully, next 420, we'll be, uh, you know, all sitting around blowing weed smoke together. But until then, I think we got a lot out of this episode here. I certainly think I did. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed History. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.